In the second and last part of the episode, The Past Defines Us, I'm with Marios Kutsukos, PhD candidate in history of religions in the late antiquity at the University of Liverpool. Marios talks briefly about how we perceive religion and faith. Is it in the same way as our ancestors did? If Romans manipulated philosophy and history as we read them now, how Plotinus, a famous Roman philosopher, marked the end of Logos and the beginning of faith as we now understand faith. What unique events we only know about, such as the burn of Alexandria's library and the destruction of Serapium marked. Marius is not new to the Global Greek Influence podcast, as he was my first guest in the episode Battles in History and Life No Regrets, and then in the episode Beyond Time and Technology. Well, I would like to say at this point that we have to detangle a little bit some terms. What religion actually meant to the ancient Greeks, what faith meant to them, what mystic and mystery meant to the Greeks, what cult means to us when we describe an ancient group of people who follow certain principles. So faith and religion were quite different in ancient Greece. They were not something untouched, they were always questioned, and ancient Greeks tried to determine what surrounds them based on art. And that was their religion, actually, the continuous quest of knowing what surrounds them and knowing themselves. And please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, no, no, that's very nicely put, and actually this is an enormous subject, so we can just, um, you know, express our own opinions because scholars are actually still trying to come to a consensus about the, what religion is, but yes, we can talk, we're talking about antiquity and ancient Greece and Rome, we have a public, public religion, so we're talking about uh, the uh, general religious ceremonies that everybody participates, like uh, the uh, sacrifices and the yearly festivals and all that, and we also have individual religiosity. Uh, to give you an example, for instance, if we're talking about the ancient Athens, classical Athens in the 5th century, you had the uh, sacrifices to the gods, to Athena, that were, you know, preordained uh, every year, which were basically barbecue kind of thing. You know, you slaughtered an animal, you roasted it, <laughs> uh, served it around. So it was a public event. All of uh, the um, group of the society uh, of a small area participated in that. And then you had private religious views, like... Uh, Socrates did his uh, theory, as he called it, his meditation, really, and his contact with his personal demon and all that. And practices like that were more private. And again, a third bit was the mystery cults, like the Eleusinian mysteries, or in the Roman Empire, the, the mysteries of Mithras, of Sabazius, and many others. That there, in the mysteries, you have a select group of few people to whom is actually revealed um, an inner truth something that is more private. So uh, public religion is for everybody. Private religion is for the individual and mystery cult religion is for a selective group of few people. Again, these three things can coexist and a person can be part of the um, public religion, of practice his own individual religion and at the same time be initiated into a cultic circle and combine all this these three things. So that, that was, I think, the beauty of religion in antiquity in a nutshell, in my opinion, because it had an enormous diversity. 
and it was very adaptable, adaptable, just as you said, as a means of uh, explaining the world, not only the visible world, but also the invisible world. Let us clarify again here that mysteries had nothing magical, as because when we talk about mysteries today or mystic events, we think of something very dark, something secret, something that nobody really wants to know. In ancient Greek times, a mystic was a person who was pursuing the truth through meditation, but through actually learning by focusing very specifically on topics of that faith, the faith of the ancient Greeks. And it's funny how you described uh, the celebration, the public celebrations to goddess Athena, because this reminds me, nowadays, Greek Orthodox churches celebrations, the Panigyria, when it comes to uh, celebrations of big saints, right? In different areas in Greece, they have a dedicated yeah, yeah. event to each city. Then you have the bishops who perform mysteries. So yeah, yeah. you can see all these three different layers of the ancient Greek religion adapted in the Greek Orthodox church. Therefore, it's nothing new there. Yeah, personally, I love uh, the Panigyria and uh, going there, it's quite, quite a cultural, folky experience. Uh, but yeah, yeah, what you say uh, is true, although I would, I would point out that uh, a religion does evolve. So you can't, have a, you can't have something that is original and yet based on the previous thing. I mean, in modern Greece, in the island of uh, Mytilene, yeah, uh, they have the feast of the Archangel Michael, and they still, uh, they actually have a bull with uh, a wreath of flowers around its neck. So on the feast of the Archangel Michael, the bull is killed. His blood is used uh, uh, to paint crosses on the foreheads of the people. And, and of course, this is an animal sacrifice, even in 2020, we, in Orthodox Greece, we do have this remnant of an animal sacrifice, which is, of course, rampantly pagan, sure, yeah. Uh, is it folky? Well, that's up to anyone to decide, but of course there's a direct link there. And when it comes especially to religion, keep in mind that all the early church fathers, uh, the, the people who actually formulated the creed, of uh, Christianity, of Nicene Christianity, because uh, as my supervisor keeps reminding me, uh, when we're talking about late antiquity, there are Christianities, it's a plural. There's no one uh, uniform version of Christianity that is imposed all over uh, the, the Roman Empire. So um, as I was saying, yeah, uh, all these Christianities were influenced by people who had a platonic basic edu education. And most of them had studied in Athens or in Alexandria or the big learning centers of the ancient world. So this connection between philosophy, thought and religion, it's undeniable. Who copied what or what is a transmission, a natural transmission? That's, that's open to question in my mind. <laughs> Personally, I believe that, uh, yes, there was a lot of copying and pasting from ancient Greek practices in terms of the ancient Greek religion to the Greek Orthodox Church. And this is a good paradigm of adapting the Roman type of governance in an area where primarily Greeks were linked to their national gods. So how could you else 
make people follow what they used to do as before, because ancient Greeks were very close to their traditions, as modern Greeks are. But let's go back <laughs> to the propaganda and what's its importance in uh, the Roman Empire and as we have inherited today. So we have Romans evading Greece. And then many Greek intellectuals served as household slaves tutoring noble Roman children. Science and philosophy were either ignored or relegated to rather low status. Cicero used Greek thought more to reinforce the old Roman ways than as a source of new ideas and viewpoints. So the scientific legacy of Greece was condensed and corrupted into Roman encyclopedias whose major function was entertainment rather than enlightenment. Um, how did Romans manipulate philosophy, which was an area of free exchange of ideas in ancient Greeks? Yeah, well, uh, again, it's, uh, it's a matter of uh, what terms and understanding we have this. I mean, I, I don't think the Romans manipulated uh, philosophy in, in, uh, in a sense that they did it on purpose. They, they just adapted philosophy in their own understanding. And it is very interesting, again, here to note that exactly the, the reason why Romans learned Greek was but because in their time, in order to actually be able to read philosophy, appreciate philosophy and utilize it for their own benefit, just as you said, with Cicero and all that, uh, they needed the vocabulary that was uh, extant in Greek only to, to convey certain uh, subtle meanings and all that. The Romans, I think, did adapt a lot of Greek philosophy because indeed all their tutors were basically coming from a Greek background. And I mean, even uh, the uh, satirical poet uh, Juvenal says that, oh, in the first century, in the time of Augustus, that all oh, Rome is full of Greeks and in every household there's a Greek who thinks uh, they know better than their master and what has happened to Rome for Romans. The Greeks are everywhere. They're in our schools. They teach our children. Uh, they take care of our businesses. So th this poet is kind of making fun and at the same time lamenting this, this Greek infiltration of culture and individuals into Roman society. So... I think we have a merging there of Greek thought being adopted by Romans and, of course, transformed and transmuted into a Roman thing. So that's why we can definitely find differences between classical Greek thinkers and uh, early uh, imperial period Roman thinkers. Depends on, uh, I mean, what writer we're talking about, because, you know, we're just discussing this in a very general air. Uh, but I think that the Romans, especially the erudite Romans, were in positions of power, in positions of political power. So this meant that all their, uh, their philosophical points of view would be, A, utilized in orations and in speeches that we have left, which are, you know, basically propaganda and they serve a very specific political purpose. And B, just because these people... Uh, had also a stake in the political game, sure, yeah, they would use everything in their power, uh, just as they used money and political influence and even force of arms, they would also use philosophy. So I think this corruption uh, of philosophy does happen because of the, the, the way the, the Roman Empire was administered, administered and because exactly the, 
the, the sources we have left, uh, the sources we have in our hands from erudite Romans are also sources, these erudite Romans are also politicians. So I think we do have, a, um, let's say, a, just one piece of the puzzle. I don't, uh, in, in some cases, uh, just like with uh, Bishop Synesius we mentioned earlier, we have a, a Roman, a Roman citizen of Greek origin, uh, because he claimed to even be a descendant of Hercules, and it was something he believed, uh, who didn't really want to participate in governance. He, he was actually forced into becoming a bishop, and he really complained about that and said, no, 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 you just leave me alone. I just want to hunt and write my philosophical book. So we do have cases of people who didn't want to get into politics in the uh, late antiquity. But if we're talking about the imperial period, most of our sources come from people who are politically active, and therefore it is expected of them to use their erudition to create you know, a, a narrative and arguments against their political opponents. This takes me to the next question. The public does not see the history written by Romans as a source of propaganda. Historians do. How did the Roman historians manipulate history, as in the case of Queen Cleopatra, a Macedonian queen? Uh, excellent, yeah. I mean, uh, as historians, we can never take uh, primary sources at face value. That is, when you have the annals of Tacitus, right? Uh, Tacitus, when he writes his history, or um, Suetonius, or uh, when we read the Historia Augusta, we always have to keep in mind that it is a, an individual writing this, and this individual has his sympathies, his antipathies, his own political agenda. So, for instance, um, Tacitus uh, is really anti-Nero. He doesn't really like uh, Emperor Nero. Oh, again, if we're talking about uh, Queen Cleopatra, yes, because Cleopatra was the enemy of uh, Augustus, of Octavian, and his, uh, her forces, the Macedonian forces, were defeated at the Battle of Actium, as we said uh, at the beginning of the uh, interview, that, you know, 31 BCE, Mark Antony's armies and Cleopatra's armies who were combined were crushed by Octavian. So, again, Cleopatra is portrayed as an oriental, as a witch, as a, a debauched person. But again, that was also this sort of propaganda against, um, let's say, foreigners and foreign powers, and especially women. There are lots of layers to this. <laughs> there is uh, uh, the women aspect of Cleopatra, there is the foreign aspect of Cleopatra and all that. Did fuel a lot of propaganda in her time because, I mean, the, the actual truth of the matter was that Augustus couldn't have a foreign queen that was enemical towards him run Egypt, because Egypt was the granary of the whole empire. If Egypt shut its borders, uh, Rome would go hungry. So uh, Egypt really grew all the crops that produced the bread for the Roman Empire. So Cleopatra was in a position of great power, and in order to for Augustus to justify his victory over here. I mean, he did use a lot of propaganda. And that was also a case always when the Romans wanted to attack someone, they had a, they used propaganda to justify their role, saying we are the good guys. They are the, the weird foreigners, the enemies of the state, uh, the bad guys. Uh, something that we see again today in many instances. The aggressor always justifies their position by saying we're the good guys and we have to do something about that. 
There is a lot of connection between the Romans and the Catholic Church in terms of blaming people for witchcraft, as in the case of the Romans blaming Cleopatra to be a witch when she actually was a very well-educated woman. There is definitely the element of sexism by Romans when it comes to seeing as impossible a woman to be a ruler and uh, many people do not see, or maybe we do not have the sources to support that possibly women had a much better place in the Greek society, yet Roman historians propagated the opposite, which is also something that has been propagated into the Greek Orthodox Church. So do we have enough evidence to say today that women indeed had a much better place socially in ancient Greece than we know basically from Roman scripts? First of all, yeah, Cleopatra did have a reputation and we do know that uh, she was actually very erudite. She spoke uh, about seven languages, which is quite amazing even for today's standards. And she was uh, great at conversation, uh, aside from her dazzling beauty and her very keen skills of diplomacy. So yes, she was a very exceptional uh, lady of the ancient world. And some also attribute to her even alchemical works, uh, works of chrysopoeia, of making gold, which actually uh, could be a chemical process of either making a red dye or uh, making a, a metal alloy that looks like gold. So Cleopatra did have this great reputation even as a scientist in her day. Now that you said, talked about sexism, sexism was a let's say a baseline, a steady baseline throughout the ancient world, because even in the Greek city-state, the women did have their own separate little world, let's say. Of course, this is a huge matter, and we're just touching upon it summarily. But for instance, uh, I, I would say that the, the religious aspects did affect directly the role of women. But then again, we would have to look into particular cases. For instance, uh, the Pythagoreans did have initiated women that were totally equal to men. So in the, within the Pythagorean community of the ancient Greeks, yes, women were uh, equal to men uh, to an astounding degree. In Christianity, it depends again which Christianity we're talking about, because if we're talking about the Montanists of the early first century, their women were prophetesses and they even had visions of Jesus Christ as a woman coming to them. Of course, Montanists were deemed heretics and all that. Again, if we're talking about the Gnostics, which is an umbrella term for various other groups, again, their women and uh, Sophia, the divine wisdom of God, is uh, a very central figure in their theology. So women did have a lot of uh, influence and all that. Aside from many, many particular cases that do make an argument for a great position of power in women, uh, if we look at it from, uh, philosophical, from philosophical sources, from religious sources, and from even magical sources, talking about the societal norm, I would say that women were pretty much the underdogs, as usual, and therefore very easy to be vilified by a patriarchal society in general. Even uh, Queen Zenobia, Queen Cleopatra, uh, they didn't have a really good reputation. Even, even the very cult of the uh, mother goddess, Isis, uh, in Rome, it didn't have so much of a good reputation. So the Roman did 
the Romans did uh, persecute the uh, cultists of Isis in Rome, claiming that they were debauched, they were immoral, basically claim what uh, all the things they claimed about Christians later on in the persecutions of the Christians, and what exactly the Christians claimed when they're persecuting their own opponents later on. Uh, so we see this circling uh, around that the enemy is always immoral, bad, and all that, just as, we, as you mentioned, the, the witch hunts. So I think that that has to do more with um, the propaganda of the, 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 uh, the party in power. The party in power, the individuals in power, are always relish the opportunity to present their opponents as deviant, immoral, and evil, so as to justify their, the harsh actions they rain upon their victims. We see that the Romans were a little bit confused regarding philosophy and religion and adopting uh, their own culture into these different to them themes that were introduced to their societies by the Greek philosophers. Can you tell us a bit about Plotinus, a famous Roman philosopher who marked the end of Logos, which was the basis, the principle of the ancient Greek civilization and the beginning of faith in philosophy of the Roman era? Actually, Plotinus is a most intriguing figure and basically my doctoral thesis currently is focusing on these middle Platonists because Plotinus is part of the philosophers we call middle Platonists, basically working on, uh, more on Iamblichus, but uh, uh, Plotinus was the, one of the teachers of uh, Iamblichus and uh, so there is a definite connection and I have uh, you know done a lot of work on that. So. Basically, what Plotinus, Plotinus was part of what we call the Middle Platonists, um, and uh, this meant that he actually felt that he was a Platonist, uh, and living in uh, the late antiquity, so we're talking about uh, the third century CE, uh, he did, in fact, uh, mark the end of the Logos in the classical sense, but then again, all these Neoplatonic philosophers Although they did have the, uh, their, um, let's say, intellectual roots in Plato, and they felt they, they considered themselves pure Platonists, they did have this transcendental kind of thinking. This means that in, they, they um, mixed pure rational thought with mystery thought, with what psychology today calls magical thought. So in Plotinus, we see the concept of theurgy. Uh, theurgy, literally, literally translating to God work, the work of becoming a God or becoming assimilated with God, uh, was a system that Plotinus embraced, uh, which consisted of, consisted of uh, meditation, uh, deep, profound meditation, in order to detach the, the, the mind from the body. So... Plotinus and all the middle Platonists actually uh, bring into the empire's, let's say, uh, arsenal of thought, this uh, idea, this manichaistic idea that uh, the spirit is pure and good, the body is evil, everything material is lesser, a kind of, uh, let's say, corrupted or polluted, and 
salvation lies in exalting the mind over body. So this sort of thinking, which is again restrained into intellectual elite circles, does have a reflection on society and on its turn towards a more ascetic form of life. And I think that Plotinus actually uh, is the first very influential philosopher that pretty much laid the groundwork, let's say, in Roman thought for the reception of Christianity. Because Christianity, in its many forms, and even its in, in its more united fronts after the First Council of Nicaea, did actually use a lot of the paving stones that the Neoplatonists uh, had uh, laid before it. So in that sense, I think, yes, Plotinus is very important because he is the, the first, let's say, the first celebrated uh, Roman philosopher to put in the groundwork of magical thought in that sense. Magical thought in the sense of um, neglecting the bodily needs and embracing and having as a life scope the development of something that is not materialistic. Stanford historian Walter Scheider says the absence of the Roman Empire fueled Western civilization. Scheider continues by saying that nothing like the Roman Empire ever emerged again, which was a good thing. We see the abrupt end of innovation by the first century BC in terms of materials technology and the end of the continuations of Plato's Academy and Aristotle's Lyceum as schools of science and innovation. A historical example of innovation interruption was the burn of Alexandria's library, dubbed it as a real event by many, despite it was reported by Plutarch or Plutarchos, who was born in Heronia in Boeotia in Greece, and Strabo, born in Amasia in Pontos. The Library of Alexandria was part of the research institution Museum dedicated to the nine muses. So was this an act or one of the acts that abruptly end the innovation as we know it in the ancient world? I wouldn't say that innovation was abruptly cut off, but I would say it did decline very rapidly after a certain point. And talking about the Library of Alexandria, exactly, just as you said, Plutarch, uh, Plutarch, uh, in, in the account of Plutarch, uh, Julius Caesar is accused as the burner of the Library of Alexandria. Uh, of course, according to uh, Julius Caesar, to Plutarch's account, Julius Caesar, you know, it was pretty much an, an accident. He tried uh, setting fire to the enemy fleet, to the Egyptian fleet in Alexandria, and the fire caught on to the library. Of course, not the entire library was destroyed. Let's keep in mind that the um, Library of Alexandria was an institution, a, a, a hoard, a treasury of knowledge that uh, lasted for about uh, a thousand years and it was destroyed incrementally in steps. I mean, even in uh, the seventh century, in uh, 640, uh, it was Omar who still found a lot of manuscripts in the uh, Library of Alexandria when the Arabs conquered Alexandria. And as... Uh, the caliph is uh, reputedly said all these manuscripts, they either contradict the Quran, so they must be burned, or they agree with the Quran, therefore they are su superfluous. 
So according to accounts, uh, he used the, the manuscripts, the remaining manuscripts from the already twice burned Library of Alexandria to fuel the, the fires for the baths, uh, and they burned for six months. So that was a huge destruction in the seventh century. But before that, we have the first century destruction by Julius Caesar. And then, of course, the Serapeum, which housed about 10% of the manuscripts of uh, the Library of Alexandria, was destroyed during the tumultuous period of the fourth century under uh, Patriarchs Theophilus and Cyril, the Christian uh, bishops of uh, Alexandria, and all the, um, the classes between the Christian, the pagan, and the Jewish community going on uh, at that time in Alexandria. So as a result of that, the, the Library of Alexandria did receive a, a very heavy blow. So I don't think there was an abrupt end to all that knowledge, but for sure, I think it was an incremental decline because the Temple of the Muses, it's actually the etymology of the word museum, it's a Temple of the Muses, a chapel to the Muses where works of art, books, and even pieces of technology were kept in ancient temples. This museum actually was, uh, when it burned, that was the, the marking point, uh, the starting point of the decline of the ancient world and the advancement of the new Roman uh, world order, in my opinion. But, but that's, that's how I have the timeline in my head. Thank you very much, Marius, for being here with us today and explaining and giving depth to all these different misconceptions we might have today. It has been a pleasure as always. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. It uh, will be a pleasure to have you as well in future episodes because you significantly add value to the episodes when it comes to historical matters, events, and how we can shed light to such uh, past events based on what we live today. Thank you very much. I look forward to that. And always keep in mind that uh, I think history is uh, quite an important study because, again, those who don't know it are doomed to repeat it. To listen to more interesting guests and a unique perspective into current and timeless matters, please subscribe, like, and leave your comments to the Global Greek Influence Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Angor FM, Google Podcasts, and four more podcasting platforms, as well as to the podcast's Twitter and Facebook accounts. Stay tuned for another interesting discussion next Sunday. (laughs) 